Appreciate everyone's presence today. I'll invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2. Again, we appreciate everyone being here. We know that uh, on any given Sunday we'll have some of our folks who are not here. And uh, maybe that they're watching online this morning, unable to be out. And uh, we appreciate their efforts to, to do that. We do want to remind people that uh, though we live stream what we do here in the morning, it's not really a, a substitute uh, for being here in person. I understand sometimes uh, people can't be away from home for some reason, but uh, let's not get into the habit of just uh, uh, using that as a convenient thing to do uh, and just uh, as a substitute for in-person worship. There really is no substitute for that, is there? Being here together and shaking each other's hands and seeing each other face to face and uh, that's, uh, that's, that's really a blessing that uh, we need to take advantage of. In Acts chapter 2, we read about events on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus and Him giving the apostles what we call the Great Commission to go out and make disciples of all the nations. And so they are in Jerusalem as they've been instructed to, uh, to do, stay in Jerusalem. And on that first Pentecost, Uh, something amazing happened. Let's read about that in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they are all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And so here the apostles are all together. I think that's the people that are being referred to here. The apostles all together in one place. If you go back to the last verse of chapter 11. It's the apostles that Luke has in mind. And then this sound uh, is heard. And then this rushing wind, or the sound like a rushing wind is heard. And then there are these tongues of fire that come and light themselves on each one of the apostles. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. I take those to be languages. There are people there gathered together, many different languages spoken in the crowd. And so the Holy Spirit enables these men to communicate the the gospel, to teach the gospel to the people so that they could hear it being taught in their own language, and many of them respond. We we read at the end of the chapter that 3,000 receive the Word, and and they're baptized that day. I've been talking about, over the last several weeks, trying to think biblically about our lives and about what we see happening in the world, and I may come back to that, but I'm going to turn my attention a little bit different direction today. Of all the subjects, all the things taught in Scripture, among the the most daunting and intimidating for us is the subject of the Holy Spirit. You you may have talked to people on occasion and and, and they make certain statements about the Holy Spirit and and, uh, we're pretty sure I'm not, you know, pretty sure I don't agree with all of that, but I'm not quite sure how to respond to it. I'm not quite sure what passage to go to or, or what, uh, what verses to, to point that person to, to engage in a, a good, meaningful, significant conversation about the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the subject of quite a bit of conversation these days. In fact, over the last, oh, I don't know how long, 50, 60 years, one of the most influential movements in the churches has been the charismatic movement. The, the Holy Spirit being a prominent uh, figure in that, in that movement, in that discussion. Eventually, I want to talk a little bit about the role of the Holy Spirit in God's plan of salvation. But this morning, I'm going to talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about His nature. Just a couple of preliminary observations. We want to rely on a proper understanding of Scripture for accurate information concerning the Holy Spirit. And now we, want to, we want to base what we think about the Spirit, what we believe and teach about the Spirit, squarely upon what Scripture says, and an accurate understanding of what Scripture says. And so, not necessarily popular notions about the Holy Spirit or personal testimony about the Spirit or church doctrine about the Spirit. Well, what do the Scriptures say? So we want to draw from Scripture information that will shape our thinking about the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we, we don't want to go beyond what Scripture says. And so we want to take in consideration what Scripture says but not go beyond what it says and, uh, and then begin to, to speculate and say things that are really unfounded on Scripture. We want to do that with any Bible subject, don't we? Draw, draw our conclusions, draw our information from Scripture, but not go beyond what the Scripture says. And then the other observation I'll make is the Bible doesn't talk about spiritual subjects in a kind of a systematic way. You might pick up a book written by a theologian and he might talk about, here's a whole section of the book on the Scriptures. Here's a whole section of the book on Christ. Here's a whole section of the book on the church. That's just not the way the Bible is written. And so we'll be drawing information from various places in the Bible to inform our understanding of what it says about the Holy Spirit. More about the Holy Spirit is revealed to us in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. And so most of what we say will be drawn from the New Testament, although I wouldn't say all of it, but most of it because that's where we find most of the information in the Bible about the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit and speaks, uh, refers to the Holy Spirit in, in different ways. Here in Acts chapter 2 in verse 4, you see, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in, in this exact way, the New Testament refers to that, that being that we call the Holy Spirit. And that's not an unusual way to refer to the Spirit. But sometimes he's referred to the Spirit, uh, referred to as the Spirit of God. Matthew 12, verse 28. Jesus says, if I by the Spirit of God cast out demons, know that the kingdom has come upon you. Well, that's not a different being than the Holy Spirit, just a different way of referring to Him. The Spirit of God, or sometimes the Spirit of Christ. If you turn over to Romans chapter 8, you'll see, oh, several ways of referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God in verse 9, and the Spirit of Christ in verse 9, again, not different entities, but different ways of referring to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's simply referred to as the Spirit. And so, 
You see that in verse 13 of Romans chapter 8. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. And so just another reference to this being we call the Holy Spirit, or Scripture calls the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, sometimes simply the Spirit. And then look, for example, at verse 11 of Romans chapter 8. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in, there's another way of referring to Him. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, just another way of calling Him the Spirit of God. And at the end of the book of John, in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, there Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Helper. Some versions say the Comforter. Look, for example, at Verse 16 of, Roman, uh, of John 14. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He'll teach you all things. And so there are different ways of referring to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit... Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, uh, simply the Spirit, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, the Helper or the Comforter. And so don't, don't be confused by all of that. It's just, again, multiple ways of referring to the Holy Spirit. What kind of being then is the Holy Spirit? Well, we want to suggest that the Holy Spirit is a person. Now, it's not a human person, never has been a human person. He's a spirit person or a spiritual person. Some people believe that the Holy Spirit is, is simply God's power sent out from Him to accomplish His will. An impersonal force, not a person, a power, a force. Something like the wind or electricity that uh, is impersonal and yet powerful. But a close look at the New Testament will show that the Holy Spirit is a person just like the Father is a person, and the Son is a person. Now, let's support that from material from the Scriptures. It's interesting in John 14, 15, and 16 that we find this masculine, independent, personal pronoun used to refer to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've studied a foreign language, maybe you've studied a language in which nouns have gender. And so some nouns are masculine, some nouns are feminine, and some nouns are neuter. In Greek you have those three genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter. We have a little bit of that, or maybe some vestiges of that, in English. And we see it in the pronouns, the personal pronouns that we use. And so if we're referring to a man, we say he. If we're referring to a woman, we say she. If we're referring to something that's neither man nor woman, we say it. And so I got up this morning, started my car, and I drove it to the church building. And so we would expect if a thing is neither male nor female or not a person, we would uh, expect that neuter, independent pronoun, to be used, it. In fact, in... In Greek, the word pneuma is neuter. It's not feminine, it's not masculine, it's neuter. But look at what John 14 and verse 16 says. I will ask the Father, He'll give you another helper, 
that He may be with you forever. Not it, but He. And so here's Jesus referring to the Holy Spirit with an independent, personal pronoun, masculine in form. It's He. And then verse 17, that is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be with you. And so here's very clear, isn't it, that Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit as a person. It's not, it's not a thing. It's not impersonal. It's not simply a force like electricity or, or, or the wind or solar power or nuclear power. It's a personal being. It's, the Holy Spirit is a He. But there's more to consider as well. That the Holy Spirit is a personal being is seen in the attributes and the abilities He possesses and the actions He performs. In this passage in John 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus calls Him the Helper or the Comforter. Now, now that word is used sometimes in a legal context to refer to an advocate, a counselor, a legal aid, someone who gives comfort or encouragement. In fact, it's used of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2. Same word used to describe Jesus. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so Jesus is the advocate, someone that we call to our side to plead for us, to intercede for us, to help us. And that's the very word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit. Here is someone, a personal being, called to our side to help us, to comfort us, to give us the aid, the strength, the encouragement that we need to, to work on our behalf. And so the fact that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a, a helper suggests that He's a person as well. And then the Holy Spirit does a number of things in the New Testament that persons do. For example, John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Notice that. He will teach you. And so here's the Holy Spirit doing something that a person does. He teaches. In the same section of John, John 15, here in verse 26, it says, when the Helper comes, now we already know who the Helper is, that's the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send it to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. And so the Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit testifies or bears witness. Look at Romans chapter 8. We see another activity of the Spirit that would suggest to us that He is a person. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps with our weaknesses. There's that idea of helping again. For we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so, He's interceding for us. He's teaching. He's testifying. He's interceding with the Father on our behalf. Here, if you go to the next verse, 
Verse 27 says, And he who searches the hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Knows what the mind of the Spirit is. And so the Holy Spirit has a mind. He has intellect. He's able to think. Now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. 1 Corinthians, we'll look at chapter 2 and verse 10 specifically. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 10. Now, Paul has been talking about the things that he's been preaching, the gospel, things which eye has not seen nor ear heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. He's searching all things. So he has mind, he has intellect, and here he is searching all things, even the deep things of God. The next verse, verse 11 says, Who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. The spirit knows. He knows the thoughts of God. And so he knows. He has a mind. He's able to teach. He testifies. He intercedes. All of those things lead to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit is a person. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to look at verse 11 specifically. Here Paul is talking about the distribution of spiritual gifts. And he says in verse 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. His will, his intellect. He's able to make decisions. He testifies. He teaches all of those things. In Acts chapter 8, we read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember the kind of the beginning of the story. Ethiopian eunuch, he'd been to Jerusalem to worship. He lives in Ethiopia, and so he's on his way back home. And Philip is told to go and join himself to this chariot where this man is riding, and he's going to teach him about Christ. Well, in uh, Acts chapter 8 and verse 29, we read this. So when they had solemnly testified, spoken by the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. We're teaching the gospel to the villages of the Samaritans. An angel of the Lord spoke to Spirit. Uh, spoke, spoke to Philip, get up uh, and then go to meet this man. Then verse 29 says, The Spirit said to Philip, go up and join the chair. The Spirit speaks. And so the Spirit said to Philip. You see it again in Acts chapter 13 and verse 2. While they are ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. And if you go over to Hebrews chapter 3, find a quotation from the Old Testament, but it's introduced in the, with these words, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who communicates this information to men who then write it down. We call that inspiration. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 28, the church of Jerusalem is considering whether or not to bind circumcision on Gentiles who become, a, become Christians. They decide to compose a letter and send it out among the churches. And verse 28 says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to follow this course of action. So it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. So look at all the, look at all the, the attributes of the Spirit, the activities of the Spirit. 
they all point to the conclusion that the Spirit is a person. Finally, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, we find this, this instruction, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't, 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 don't bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. We would, might say, don't upset the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't grieve Him by neglecting to carry out your spiritual duties. And so, and so all of this information suggests to us that the Holy Spirit is a person. So why have we spent all this time going through these passages and trying to make this point and establish it just as strongly as we can? Well, some deny that the Holy Spirit is a person, a personal being. They simply say that He's the power of God sent from Him to accomplish His purposes. Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and sit down and talk to you about the Holy Spirit. That's what they'll say. The Holy Spirit's not a person, it's just a power. But all of this information says otherwise, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit is referred to as He. He's an advocate. He intercedes for us. He teaches. He speaks. He has intellect. All of that would suggest that He is, in fact, a person. One other passage, Acts chapter 10. This is an interesting way to conclude this section of our discussion today. But Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, and he says in that, in that verse, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and so forth. And so the Holy Spirit is distinguished from the power. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And so you can see a distinction is being made between those two things. Our second point that we want to develop a little bit this morning is that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. And I'm using the word divine as a synonym for deity. It suggests that He is fully God. And so the Holy Spirit is, is God. He is a divine person. Now, let's build up to that point a little bit. Let's lay a little groundwork before we make that point specifically. We'll observe that the Father is a divine being. God the Father is a divine being. He's fully God. And the Son, God the Son is a divine being. And He's fully God. And so there's really, I don't know that there's very much question about those two observations, but we'll look at a passage or two to establish those things. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6 says, For us there is but one God, the Father. And so the Father is God. The Father is a divine being. In fact, if you look at the opening verses of the letters of Paul, you're likely to find something like, Greetings to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, or, or some equivalent expression. And so God is the Father. I mean, the Father is God. He is a divine being. Again, not much, not much uh, argument about that. Also, the Son is a divine being. Now, there is some question about that. <laughs> but the New Testament is very plain, very clear, that the Son is a divine being. And so, John chapter 1 suggests that. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. And so in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the Father is a divine being. The Son is also a divine being, just like the Father in that way. In Hebrews chapter 1, we find this statement. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed an heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He's the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And so God today speaks through His Son, who is an exact representation, a duplication, so to speak, of His nature. Whatever God the Father is as deity, the Son possesses that same quality, that same essence. And so the Father is a divine being. The Son is a divine being. Now it's interesting then to know that the Holy Spirit is associated with the Father and Son as an equal in a passage like this. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. And so you see how they're all treated as equals in that passage. Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not as though uh, one is superior or possesses some essence or some nature that the others don't. They're, they're, They're equals in that way. And then another passage very similar to, to this one, in this regard anyway, is 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so they're grouped together as equals. Whatever the Father and Son are, the Holy Spirit is. If they are deity, so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does things that only God can do. And so when you read the Bible, you read actions attributed to the Holy Spirit that really are actions only God can do. He has a role in creation. In Genesis chapter 1, for example, in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know that the Son is involved in creation as well. And then verse 2 says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And so the Spirit, like Father, like Son, has a role in the creation of all things. In the 139th Psalm, David asks the question, Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go from your Spirit? Well, if I go here, you're there. If I go there, you're there. If I go over there, you're there. You know, Wherever I go, your spirit is. And so wherever God is, the spirit is as well. And so he's not limited by space. We've already seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that the spirit knows the deep things of God. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. In the book of John, chapter 6 and verse 63, it's the Spirit 
that gives life. And so who's able to give life but God? But it's the Spirit who gives life. In fact, Jesus says, we must be born of water and the Spirit. Born again of the water and the Spirit if we're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, John says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1 and other passages as well that we are born of God. And so we're born of the Spirit. And yet, we're born of God. And so the Holy Spirit does what only God can do. One other point to one other passage here in Acts chapter 5. Remember this episode involving Ananias and Sapphira. They have a piece of property. They sell it. They give part of the money to the apostles to distribute among needy Christians. They keep back part of it. And yet... They, they say that they were giving all of the money that they received from the sale of that property. So they, they lied about it, and they were held responsible for that. But in Acts chapter 5, in verse 3, it says, Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? And then later on, he says, you've not lied to men, but God. You lied to the Holy Spirit, but in lying to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. And so the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is a divine person. He's one of three divine persons in the Godhead. Each one is fully an individual person with distinct personal characteristics. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Son. The Spirit's not the Father or the Son. They, they are distinct from each other. Each is fully God. Each are equal as God. Now there's order in the Godhead as the term Father and Son would suggest. But as deity, all-possessing deity, they are equals. The Bible is also very clear that there is one God. Now that's hard for us to wrap our minds around perhaps, that there are three in the Godhead, and yet at the same time there is one God. We've been studying from the book of Isaiah recently, and Isaiah is very clear about this, isn't he? One of the things that we highlighted, Isaiah 44, verse 6, There is no God besides me, God says. In verse 8, Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock I know of none? And so the Bible is very clear there is one God, and yet the one God consists of three persons. Now we accept that by faith. Although we might struggle to understand it some, we don't experience anything exactly like that in our, you know, in our human existence. And so although we might strive to understand it, and some explanations of it are better than others, I'm sure, still we accept that by faith. It's, it's what Scripture teaches. Again, not everyone believes this, that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Some believe there is only one person in the Godhead, and sometimes that person manifests himself as the Father, and sometimes he manifests himself as the Son, and sometimes he manifests himself as the Holy Spirit. But there, there's really only one, and his name is, is Jesus. Our friends in the United Pentecostal Church hold to that view. But it's not supported by Scripture. Scripture's clear enough, isn't it, that the Father is a person... The Son is a distinct person. The Spirit is a third person. 
I'll give you one passage that, again, supports that explanation. It's in John 14 and verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give to you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. So you have Jesus, I'm asking the Father. So you have one person asking a second person. And he'll send you another, another one, the spirit of truth. And so the implication is clear. Three persons, three divine persons in the Godhead. The great thing about that is they all work together for our salvation. All of them work together for our salvation, for my salvation and your salvation. The Father sent His Son into the world to make atonement for sin. The Son went to the cross as the necessary sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit enabled the first believers to take the message to the world. It's an amazing plan, isn't it? And we're the beneficiaries. Now we're going to have more to say about the Holy Spirit next week, talk more about the work of the Spirit. But today, the Holy Spirit, a divine person. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for all the good things that you do for us. We're thankful that you love us, uh, that uh, you want to bring us into fellowship with yourself. And Father, we're thankful that you have a plan by which that can be accomplished, and that that plan is worked out through your Son coming to the earth and going to the cross. We're thankful, Father, that the Holy Spirit has come. He's inspired those first believers, those apostles, and that they've been able to teach the message, that they've written it down and it's been preserved for us so that we can read it and understand it, that we can gain the necessary knowledge we need to know to be right with you. Father, that's our desire, to be right with you. And we're so thankful that you've made that possible. Father, we pray that you'll give us good understanding of what we need to know in the Bible, that the information that you've revealed to us, help us, Father, to strive to understand it accurately. Strive to have a a full, at least as full as possible, a full understanding of these things. Guard us, Father, from error so that we might stand in the truth, and that by that truth we might be set free from our sin, as Christ has promised. You'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us. We pray that you'll continue to be with us and walk with us throughout this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.